If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open up to, I bet you can guess, Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus 23. We've been in Leviticus for a couple of months now. Uh, and today we'll be finishing our way through this chapter that we have summed up with the phrase, Thou shalt feast. Uh, all of these feasts that the Lord calls his people into. And so today we're looking at the last annual feast that is described in this chapter. Uh, we'll be reading uh, beginning in verse 33 in a moment. Leviticus 23, 33. Uh, but before we read, as we f- are finishing up, here's a quick review of where all we've been. Um, and here's our handy calendar that we, we've looked at a few times throughout these months. Uh, remember, the Jewish months are on the outside of the calendar, and then our months are there on the inside of the calendar, and we've got the, uh, the feasts described around it. So the calendar started in the spring uh, with these spring feasts of Passover, unleavened bread, uh, and then first fruits. And then seven weeks later, we've got the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. And these spring feasts are about God making a people. God making a people. Passover and unleavened bread are about the deliverance of God's people out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, the festival of first fruits is about arriving in the land uh, and the fruits that uh, are given from the land and celebrating that. And then uh, the festival of, of weeks or Pentecost is about learning to live in the land uh, where they receive the law of God and later in Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit. To, to live as God's people. And so these spring feasts are about God making a people. And then all in the seventh month, there's another cluster of feasts. The fall feasts are about the mission of God's people, who God's people are called to be as he's created them. And there are people called to worship, to reconciliation and renewal. Right? The Feast of Trumpets is about being a worshiping people as this blast of the trumpet calls them to God uh, and, and announces that God is here. Um, the Day of Atonement we talked about last week is the, about being reconciled to God and to each other through the cleansing blood of sacrifice. And as we will see today, the Feast of Tabernacles is about renewing the world with the presence of God. Renewing the world with the presence of God. It is the last and one of the greatest feasts. Sometimes, in fact, throughout Scripture, it is simply called the feast. Uh, It's this big final feast in their year of feast. It truly is an exclamation point at the end of this calendar that we've been exploring. So, Let's read about the festival, the Feast of Tabernacles. Leviticus 23, beginning in verse 33. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, the Lord's Festival of Tabernacles begins, and it lasts for seven days. The first day is a sacred assembly. Do no regular work. 
And for seven days, present food offerings to the Lord. And on the eighth day, hold a sacred assembly and present a food offering to the Lord. It is the closing special assembly. So do no regular work. And skip down to verse 39. So beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, after you have gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of Sabbath rest, and the eighth day also a day of Sabbath rest. On the first day, you are to take branches from luxuriant trees, from palms, willows, other leafy trees, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in temporary shelters for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters. So your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. And so Moses announced to the Israelites the appointed festivals of the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the gift of these feasts, for making a people and calling us to join you in mission in the world. God, I pray that as we reflect on the Feast of Tabernacles, as we reflect on your text this morning, I ask that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the Feast of Tabernacles is this week-long event where the people are reminded of their mission to renew the world with the presence of God. That's what this feast is all about. And they do this by reenacting their wilderness journey from Egypt to the promised land. Just like they did in their wilderness journey, during the feast they are to go live in temporary shelters for seven days. This is Israel's annual camping trip, right? Go set up some tents and live in them for a week. Every year they go out into the wilderness and they stay in tents. And then verse 40 says they are to decorate their tents with branches from luxuriant trees, from palms, willows, and other leafy trees. And it's a fun time. It's a really fun time. Verse 40 goes on to say, and rejoice before the Lord for seven days. Rejoice for seven days. This is the only feast that has an explicit instruction to rejoice. Rejoice, right? Go out and have a serious party in the wilderness. Like, go have some fun. Rejoice for seven days as you go camping together. This is how God's people renew the world with his presence, by rejoicing in the wilderness. By rejoicing in the wilderness. That's 
It's the mission of God's people. Now, at the center of their original wilderness journey, there was the tabernacle. The tabernacle. We looked at a rendering of it last week. Here it is again, right? Uh, You've got this large tent structure that Israel carried with them through the wilderness. It was the place where they worshipped, where they offered sacrifices, and most of all, it was a place of God's presence. There were the outer courts where you have the the altar and, and tables and so on, and then you have the inner sanctuary or the holy place, and then beyond the veil, there is the most holy place or the holy of holies as it is called sometimes, where the presence of God dwells in their midst. The tabernacle, this large holy tent where the presence of God dwelled with them, was in the center of their wilderness journey. And the Feast of Tabernacles, well, they all go and live in little tents. And it's meant to be a picture of little tabernacles that depict the renewal of God's presence. They reenact this every year on their annual camping trip. So to see a full picture of what all is going on in the Feast of Tabernacles, we need to look more closely at the tabernacle, right? I mean, that was kind of an overview, but we need to look a little bit more closely. And in order to do that, we need to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And so in Genesis 2, we read, Now the Lord had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And there was a river watering the garden that flowed from Eden. And from there it was separated into four headwaters that flowed north and south and east and west. This is Eden, right? In the very beginning, when creation is first made, and all the world is the way that it's meant to be, God and humanity living together in perfect harmony. What we have is this image of a luscious garden filled with beautiful trees and flowing waters. Right? It's this image of life. Life as it should be. The Garden of Eden becomes a primary biblical image of what it looks like to live in the peace and presence of God. The presence of God looks like this. This perfect garden flowing with water and beautiful trees, pleasing to the eye, good for food. So whenever God delivers his people out of Egypt and comes to dwell among them and guide them, they receive instructions to build a tabernacle as a sign of God's presence with them. And so 
here's a, a close-up rendering of that tent, that tabernacle tent. You've got the pillars there and the uh, sheets that are strapped down on the sides of it to form this tent. Uh, and if you look inside of it, one of the first things you'll notice is a large lampstand, right? It's right there when you walk in, this lampstand. Now, I want you to hear a description of what this lampstand looked like. Read about it in Exodus 25. God says, make a lampstand of pure gold. Hammer out its base and shaft and make its flower-like cups, buds, and blossoms of one piece with them. Six branches are to extend from the sides of the lampstand. Three on one side, three on the other. Three cups shall be like almond flowers, with buds and blossoms are there on, to be on one branch, three on the next branch, and the same for all six branches extending from the lampstand. And on the lampstand, there are to be four cups shaped like almond flowers, with buds and blossoms. One bud shall be under the first pair of branches extending from the lampstand, a second bud under the second pair, a third bud under the third pair, six branches in all. And the buds and branches shall be of all of one piece with the lampstand, hammered out of pure gold. Can you imagine that? This lampstand is a tree. It's a tree. It has branches, buds, blossoms, flowers. So when you walk into the tabernacle, the first thing that you see is a beautiful, shining tree. The tabernacle is a place of God's presence among his people. And what is it? Well, it's a little picture of a portable Garden of Eden. You have a tree of life right in the middle of it shining and lighting the whole place up. It's this Eden picture with beautiful tree and the presence of God in their midst. The tabernacle is a little picture of Eden that the people carry with them. Now, later on, after the people settle in the land, King Solomon built a permanent temple in place of the portable tabernacle as a place for God's presence among the people. And everything that was beautiful about the tabernacle is just cranked up another level for the temple. It's like a TV show just got a big screen budget and you, you got a whole new level of stuff. Here's the description of the temple as it's described in 1 Kings chapter 6. On the walls all around the temple in both the inner and outer rooms, he carved cherubim palm trees, and open flowers. He also covered the floors of both the inner and outer rooms of the temple with gold. For the entrance to the inner sanctuary, he made doors out of olive wood that were one-fifth of the width of the sanctuary. And on the two olive wood doors, he carved cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, and overlaid the cherubim and palm trees with hammered gold. 
In the same way, for the entrance to the main hall, he made door frames out of olive wood that were one-fourth the width of the hall, and he also made two doors out of juniper wood, each having two leaves that turned in sockets. He carved cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers on them, and overlaid them with gold, hammered evenly over the carvings. The description continues to work its way outward from the inside to the doorway to the exterior in the next chapter. And it goes on to say, a network of interwoven chains adorn the capitals on top of the pillars at the front of the temple, seven for each capital. And he made pomegranates in two rows, encircling each network to decorate the capitals on top of the pillars. He did the same for each capital. The capitals on top of the pillars and the portico were in the shape of lilies, four cubits high. On the capitals of both pillars, above the bowl-shaped part next to the network, were 200 pomegranates in rows all around. Can you imagine this? Uh, You know, these are kind of the long parts of of the Bible that we often kind of get, man, what's going on? We skip over it. But they didn't have photographs, so they got to write about it. But it's beautiful, right? I mean, can you picture it? The temple takes the image of the Garden of Eden, and it, it transforms it into the Forest of Eden. I mean, the walls, the doors, the pillars out front are covered in trees and flowers and fruit. It's this beautiful place. It's a place of beauty filled with the presence of God. Eden on earth again. God's presence among God's people. That's what the temple is. Now, this beautiful presence of God is never meant for the people to hoard and keep for themselves. Remember, In that original Eden picture, there was a river that was flowing through Eden, going north and south and east and west. It was was this picture of, of this river that carries the life of Eden and bringing it into the rest of the world, bringing it into everything else around it. And that's what God's people are meant to do. That's what God's people are meant to do. Rather than hoarding God's presence in a temple, they're meant to share God's presence with the world. And the prophet Ezekiel had a vision of this. In Ezekiel 47, there's a description of this vision where Ezekiel sees this river flowing out of the temple on all different sides of the temple. Uh, And it flows eastward toward the Dead Sea. Uh, Now, the Dead Sea is this very thick, salty body of water that is rightly named dead because nothing can live around it, right? It's just this sort of salty mud pit. But nevertheless, this river flows eastward out of the temple toward the Dead Sea. And in his vision, the water transforms the salty Dead Sea into a teeming freshwater place of life. Trees sprout up. Creatures flock to it for for water and life. And the vision ends with these words, Ezekiel 47, 12, fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of this river that flows. Their leaves will not wither, 
nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. Once more, this image of Eden flowing out from the temple into the rest of the world, making a worldwide Eden as the presence of God renews the earth. This is what God's people are called to. So getting back to this description in Leviticus of the Feast of Tabernacles, the people went out to live in their own little tabernacles decorated with what? Luxuriant branches of trees. Palms, willows, other leafy trees. And in these tents, they were to rejoice for seven days. In other words, what they're told to do is go out and build little Edens in the wilderness. Remember, God's beautiful presence is with you, so you're called to renew the world with his beautiful and joyful presence. And in addition to all of this, there are two more traditions that eventually uh, develop during the Feast of Tabernacles that we know historically. Uh, in addition to these tents that they'd set up and adorn with beautiful leaves and, and branches, people would also set up uh, in, in the middle of, of the, the people these giant lamps, like 10 feet tall lamps that would burn the whole week while they're rejoicing. This light would shine in their midst. And also, every day, they would bring buckets of water and dump them over onto the altar, reenacting this image from Ezekiel, that water will flow from the temple into all the places of the world. And this is what the Festival of Tabernacles looked like. It was a feast of, of tents and trees and water and light. A picture of creation and new creation of Eden and a restored Eden. A picture of the presence of God among his people, renewing the world. So just like all the other feasts, this one finds its fulfillment in Jesus. It finds its fulfillment in Jesus. We see this developed through the Gospel of John in particular. John opens with a beautiful prologue that says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus is the Word who was in the beginning, was with God, and was God. And Jesus becomes flesh and makes his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling here is the very same word that's used to describe the tabernacle. It could literally be translated, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. But it's even more than that. Because Jesus did not merely tabernacle among us, Jesus was the tabernacle 
among us. Jesus is the one who is the presence of God on earth. He's the one who was the presence of God. In him, we see the glory of God. And so right from the beginning, the Gospel of John is saying, this Jesus, he is a new tabernacle for the people of God, carrying the presence of God. Flipping over to John chapter 2, we see Jesus entering the temple, the place that's meant to be a picture of Eden, right? God's presence with God's people. But what Jesus finds is far from that. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers. He overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And so the leaders see what Jesus is doing and they challenge him. They respond to him. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? So Jesus answers them. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. So here, once more, we see that Jesus himself is God's temple. Jesus is the temple of God, the place of God's presence among God's people. And yes, this temple will be torn down. And on the third day, it will be raised again. Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is the temple of God, the presence of God renewing the world. And this becomes even clearer as we continue through the Gospel of John. In John chapter 7 and 8, Jesus actually attends the Feast of Tabernacles. He actually goes to this very thing we've been talking about all morning. The people are staying in their temporary tents, adorned with beautiful branches. Each day they go and pour water out on the altar. And throughout the whole week, these giant lamps are burning with bright light. And it's amidst all of this that Jesus says, well, it says on the last and the greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and he said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. And then just after that, Jesus goes on to say once more, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus attends the Feast of Tabernacles. And as they're pouring out water on the altar, he says, if you're thirsty, come to me. 
And as they they stand under these 10 feet tall, massive lamps, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Right? I'm the tabernacle. I'm the temple. I'm the place of God's presence. If you want what God has to offer, come to me. This is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is the tabernacle temple. Jesus is the garden of Eden out of which the waters of life flow. Jesus is that shining lampstand fashioned after the tree of life. All who are thirsty, all who are stuck in the dark can come to him for life and light. But there's something else that Jesus says in these things as well, right? He says, whoever comes to me for water, well, rivers of living water will flow from within them, right? Whoever believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from within them. In other words, when we come to Jesus, we also become little versions of Ezekiel's vision, right? Little temples with rivers flowing out. And again, whoever comes to Jesus for light, he says, will have the light of life. In other words, we become little lampstands in the darkness. This is who we are called to be. A people who, by the gift of the Holy Spirit, carry the presence of God and transform the world around us into a little Eden. That's why Paul goes on to write in 1 Corinthians, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? That God's Spirit dwells in your midst? Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? As God's people, we carry his presence and renew the world with beauty. And all of this points to that day when we will no longer need temples or tabernacles. Revelation 21 says, look, God's dwelling place will be among the people. It's that same word. The word for tabernacle. God's tabernacle will be among the people. He will dwell with them. And they will all be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. In Revelation 22, we have another image. The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve them. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the lamp 
uh, the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. They will reign forever and ever. Once more, Eden. This is a picture of Eden being restored. The tree of life is growing in our midst once more. God's presence with us fully. The river flowing out from that place and there's no longer need for a lampstand because God himself is the light. We carry this presence with us as we wait for this day when it will all become full. And so, what the Feast of Tabernacles calls us to is the the mission that God has given to us to carry his presence and renew the world as it was meant to be, with beauty and joy. So I want to leave you with two questions to ponder, some practical questions to ponder as we go from here. Uh, The first question is this, what does it look like for you to be in God's presence? What does it look like for you to be in God's presence? For, for many people, uh, you know, it's very simply has, has looked like taking a moment each morning to pause and pray, um, to, to remind ourselves of God's presence within us. Um, you know, depending on your life, you may have... 10 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour that you could spend. For many of you, that's not remotely realistic. You've got a job to get to. You've got kids running around to take care of. So maybe for you, it just looks like while you're making the coffee, say the Lord's Prayer. While you're brushing your teeth, pray for your day, right? What does it look like for you to be in God's presence? to be reminded that God is with you, that you are carrying the presence of God with you. I want to encourage you to find that moment, to take that time this week, to set up that little temporary shelter in the middle of your day and be with God. But then there's a second question I have. As you go from that place, carrying the presence of God, is there a person or a place in your life, that you can bless with the beauty and joy of God's presence? Is there a person or a place in your life that you can bless with the beauty and joy of God's presence? What does it look like to be a people rejoicing in the wilderness? Maybe it looks like literally decorating someplace, right? literally making a place more beautiful. Maybe it looks like smiling at someone when you walk past them in the store. It can be any number of things. But is there a person or place that you can bless with the beauty and joy of God's presence? We are called to be a people who carry the presence of God and renew the earth as we wait for that day when all will be made new. Amen.